welcome to Some Assembly Required, a bi-weekly design podcast where we will be covering a range of topics from tech, industrial and product design, and sustainability. I'm Pablo Samoilis. And I'm George Wyas. We're both product designers currently studying at the University of Sussex. This is episode 7, App Diction. Last week we discussed repairability. Be sure to check out that episode, and others, after this. You may be able to hear a difference in audio quality, that is due to the ongoing coronavirus crisis at the time of recording, therefore we can't be recording together at university and we're working with what we've got, but we're hoping to do the best to keep it as normal as possible. Indeed. So to begin this topic, I think we need to discuss mobile phones and how they've kind of evolved into our society and where they lie today within what we do and who we are. Yeah, they're an integral part of society nowadays. I mean everything we do one could very quickly question if that's a good thing i would argue it is yeah i mean there's so many things that it's good for and so many things that it's bad for i think it's yeah it's a really it's really interesting one to be honest and we're going to cover quite a lot of that today we will indeed so i think it's worth you know kind of asking ourselves like could we live without our phones and what is it like what what good do they actually do that we couldn't do before yeah i I like this question because I often think about it when you speak to like older generations and they're like, oh, back in my day, we didn't have, I didn't have a mobile phone all the time. And it's true. It's true. We are the, one of the first generations to really have mobile phones for the majority of our lives. Mm. And yet it does feel like we couldn't live without them. Yeah. And I think there's a, there are elements that they provide with kind of connectivity and being very close to people, even when they're not physically there that wasn't possible before, but also access to a lot of kind of social media and business stuff like your email. We always had that. It's just become harder to get away from in a sense. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't think I could live without my phone. I use it for so much of what I do in my day-to-day life. You know, sure. There are parts of it, which is just me getting distracted and is not helpful but in general you know it's a fantastically useful tool and yeah. i i need it for what i do i need it to communicate with people i need it for listening to music which sure it's something that i want to do and it's something i enjoy yeah they're like you know you have your phone and pe- people can use them in so many different ways that i think it's very difficult to define it or restrict it as a kind of universal it's not good for you it's not great for you um i know i'm always i try to be quite careful with like not putting useless things on my phone i don't have games on my phone because i end up just drowning in you know lost time mm. yeah I, I sort of do similar i do have a couple of games on my phones for those you know waiting rooms without any internet access mm. <laughs> but in general i i keep that stuff off and i mean i have so many apps on my phone that some of them i don't really use anymore i have an entire page basically dedicated to just life and uni and stuff Mm. which is just filled with you know things like trains and buses and stuff like that and it's just those sort of things that i i I look at and think i couldn't live without my phone it's it makes my life so much easier yeah in ways that it doesn't need to be complicated i mean i tend to go through my phone fairly frequently and get rid of stuff that i no longer need but i also use it you know, instead of a bus pass, instead of a wallet, like I don't try, I don't have my wallet with me most of the time. I've got everything I need right on my phone to travel, to pay for things, to, you know, even my IDs in my phone case. 
Yeah, I mean, I tend to have a wallet, but as I say, I, I could walk out the door with, you know, my phone and my keys, and that's pretty much all I need to get, get by. So so what do you think, you know, like, if if we tried to move past having phones with us all the time, would it be worth the change? Would, you know, what what would what would be different? I, I feel that if we did it, we wouldn't really gain much from it. And I feel like we'd lose a lot. Yeah, I think I would agree with that in general. I mean, you see these things of people going on, like, phone or technology detoxes and all these sort of things. And yes, maybe it could be beneficial for a week. Say you did, you thought, you know, I'm I'm using my phone too much, I'm getting distracted too much, I'm not really, like, focusing on what I'm actually doing in my day-to-day life. Hmm. Sure, for a week, if you just take it out, it might be quite enjoyable, but you'll reach a point where at least I think I would reach a point where I would I would kind of look at it and just go, okay, I've realized the benefits of not being so tied to my phone now that I want it back so that I can actually use it for the things that it benefits me for. Yeah, and I think that really kind of ties into the main point. If you're aware of what your phone means to you and how it impacts you, I don't think there's much danger to using it. And a lot of what we're going to talk about today is how that awareness, both how you can improve it yourself, but also how it's kind of intrinsically there in a way, uh, especially through apps like Screen Time that a lot of phone carriers now have. Yeah, yeah. In in a in a sense, it is that it's 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 about control. And if if you're in control of your phone usage, then it's it's only a benefit, really. Yeah. It's it's the danger is if you get addicted, I suppose. But on that, it may seem that every single app on your phone is somehow in some way built to keep you and that's the main thing we're going to talk about today yes some some apps just they're out to grab your attention they are and what is your attention worth yeah i saw that that, that quote it's an interesting question um in my research but I, i'm going to mention his name because he's really integral to this thing it's a guy called tristan harris who used to be a google's design ethicist and and yeah just a quote that he'd said is what is generally worth your attention on an interruptive basis, which is, it's a, it's an interesting kind of grounding point for this discussion because that's kind of what we're talking about. Is, you know, what is actually worth your attention on your phone that you can just pick it up as soon as it appears, and what's worth only checking when you want to check it. And of course, the bane of those choices is notifications. They are indeed notifications are basically. Just they are those little those little pop ups, those little bubbles, those little things that just grab your attention from your phone. They're messages from friends, they're social media platforms telling you about some activity which has happened that you haven't seen. They're news sites telling you about the latest breaking news. They're games telling you that oh, you can do this again now. And at the end of the day, developers in a sense use them to get you to use their app. They want they, they want you to use the app because you using their app makes them the money. Yeah. So whatever your app is, you know, like the, the, big, the big goal, and I've, I've, you know, I work in app development, the big goal is getting that retention. So I know from my own experience, we don't have issues getting downloads. You know, we have various ad campaigns running and we run social media and we get a pretty consistent stream of downloads. But the biggest issue that we face and that many other app developers face is getting people who've downloaded your app, used it once or twice, to actually keep using it. And I know, at least from the statistics I have, that the vast majority of the users of our app only open our app two to three times. 
I guess I'll just say now, in case people have forgotten since our first episode, the the app that you develop is a photography app. Yes. So it's, I guess it's going to be a bit different in that sense to a social media platform because it's it's really a tool. Yeah, definitely. Social media people go on a lot more. But the, the, the main point here is that notifications are the prime way for app developers to get people to come back. Yeah. And they'll do anything they can to make them interesting and enticing. Yes, because as I'd mentioned before, you know, I've got plenty of apps on my phone, which I haven't touched in ages, that were useful at one point in my life, and I've just left them there. And half the time, I forget that I've even got the app on my phone. So that's kind of a way that notifications work in that sense, is because they, they're reminding you that the app's even there in the first place sometimes. Yes. And in the context of social media, one of the most dangerous things they can do is they can make something seem more interesting by basically mimicking human interaction. So they make it seem like a real person is trying to actually get your attention as opposed to just an algorithm. Uh, The example that George noted here was Facebook telling you that someone's interested in an event. So, you know, if there's an event going on, it'll be like, George is going, as opposed to just, this is an event. Yeah, it's almost... You don't really think about it, but it's almost like there's a kind of a puppet master trying to pull these strings and say, hey, your friend's going to this, maybe you should go as well, you know, be social sort of thing. It's it's an interesting one because it's mm. it's making it seem like, you know, Facebook is it's just trying to be friendly and be like, oh, look, someone's going to this, maybe you'd like to go as well sort of thing. But in reality, it's just the app kind of telling you, oh, look, someone else is using the app for this event. Why don't you go on the app and see? Mm, why don't you check it out? And yeah, I mean, I I don't tend to grab for those. I actually get pretty annoyed by Facebook notifications in general because most of the time they're telling me of stuff that I'm not interested in. Yeah, and that's what is often pushing people to actually disable notifications as a whole. Almost every single time when I download a new app, you open it up and it'll say, this app would like to send you notifications. And I pretty much always say don't allow, unless it's a messaging app, I pretty much always say don't allow because I can't be bothered. Yeah, I've I've only I've got very few that'll let notifications come through. Yeah, and it's interesting because I think this perception of notifications has really shifted in the past, you know, several years since all these apps and mobile phones and smartphones basically have become more popular. And I actually found out that notifications were first introduced by BlackBerry in 2003 as a way to check your phone less. So it was literally so that you could see what your email was that had come in or text messages that come in without without having to open the phone you can just see it at a glance and that way you don't have to spend time on your phone checking oh have i had a new email sort of thing it's it's wild that they started with kind of a yeah just be more present in not being on your phone and that completely backfired yeah i almost wonder whether it just it must it, it must have given them some data in some senses where these developers have gone hang on hang on there's something we can do with these so studies have actually shown that um, one of the things that makes these notifications kind of so addictive and makes us, you know, pick them up all the time is actually the unpredictability of them, because that's and that's one way the apps used to mimic kind of human interaction. Because a human sending you a message is unpredictable. It's not. It doesn't happen it, in general. It doesn't happen at the same time every single day. And apps sort of try to mimic that because. It makes it it makes it more addictive because you don't know when it's going to pop up. If you knew that at six o'clock every day your phone would light up with a notification from a social media platform telling you about what's happened that day, you'd know that it's coming and you'd be like, All right, that's going to happen at six o'clock. Fine, it could get to seven, eight o'clock and go, oh, oh yeah, that happened earlier. I'll go and check it, sort of thing. Yeah, it's the unpredictability that kind of takes logic from you know slot machines and casinos. 
And I think something that would be very interesting to actually look into is if you had your notifications essentially delayed to always display on the hour, would that change how you perceive them? So I can imagine a system where, you know, your social media notifications come out four times a day, your email and business notifications come out twice a day, and of course your urgent things, aka phone calls, happen as they happen. And what would happen if you could kind of schedule them? Would it would it change the way they're perceived and kind of absorbed? I think it would. Um, I think people would actually take them for less than what they do at the moment. Because, you know, I do have a few apps which send me notifications or reminders to do certain things at certain times in the day. And actually, I pay less attention to those notifications than I do other ones. Because mm. you already know it's coming. Yeah, pretty much. And when I see it happen, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's happening at that time. I knew it was going to happen. And I mean, there was some research that I found, which which basically said that, you know, bundling notifications to be released at set times reduces user stress. Which is, of course, very valuable, but no one, no phone provider, you know, Apple, Google, Samsung actually offer that as an option. Not yet. Hopefully they will in the future, because, you know, again, it's, as we were saying with, with the start, how phones really are just customizable and personal. You know that that's something that's customizable. If someone if someone wants to have that sort of system in that that helps them work, then it would be nice to have that option, I guess. It would be, but regardless, the same kind of methodology that's used with making notifications unpredictable and therefore addictive because of the slot machine theory is also used in the color of notifications and what human eyes are attracted to. Guess what? It's red. Yeah, I I actually saw some pictures whilst researching this and. It was just a little mock-up of, you know, an app with the red bubble for the notification versus a blue bubble versus a green bubble. And it's it's amazing how much that colour makes a difference. Yeah. I mean, just imagine right now in your head, you know, take a second to think about your Twitter or Instagram or Facebook with like, instead of a little red three, it's got a blue three. Like, it's boring. <laughs> and it doesn't stand out as much. It doesn't which stand is out. Just the whole point, you know. I think it's quite funny. I mean, a lot of people, I think, get like this, and I find it a little bit. Is I hate having that bubble there. If there's a bubble on any of the apps, even if I don't care what the notification is, I will click on the app to get rid of the notification. Oh, I do that like almost every morning. Yeah, and I think a lot of people do, and it's it's because of how much it stands out, and that at the end of the day is the whole reason it's that color to begin with. Yeah, because researchers actually found that human eyes are attracted to warm colors. So that's often the reds, oranges, yellows. And, you know, those are the bright colors that our eyes are instantly drawn to. And if you think about kind of color theory and what they mean in design, you know, red, red signifies passion, energy, love and desire and determination. And those are all things that notifications or the people notifying you, they want you to feel passion, energy, love and especially desire and determination to open their app and give them dollars. Mm. Because, you know, and then color, colors like blue are supposed to, supposedly more calm and kind of collected and corporate often. And they don't want to give you that. So that kind of covers notifications and why certain design choices have been made in order to really pull people in towards using phones more. Now, once they're within an app, say they're within Instagram, what is it that keeps them there? The answer algorithms yeah and we spoke a bit about algorithms in our previous episode um spyware we did and this yeah this is going to be a bit more 
a bit more light, I think. A little bit. So the origin of algorithms and social media and where they really tie into each other is the like. And the fact that as people, we get a little release of dopamine when we get likes because we like to be validated. Now, the like didn't originate on Facebook, but that's kind of where its power was discovered and where it was popularized. Now, I do not remember the name of the developer who was responsible for it, but it was during a hackathon that Facebook had. So they had these, you know, long eight hour events where they would just sit down and code for hours straight working on a new feature. And one person worked on a awesome button. That's what it was then. And the idea was you could just do a little reaction to something that you found awesome instead of leaving a comment, because that's basically what was the option before, was you had to leave a comment and said, yeah, I like this, this is cool. And they thought that if they got rid of that extra step, it would kind of push people to feel less awkward just saying, yeah, this is nice, and have another way of displaying kind of content. And we, we can talk about how that has changed the way we communicate virtually now with liking messages as opposed to replying. Um, but basically they had this awesome button and they tested it on a few users at Facebook and found really quickly that posts that had lots of likes would get more likes and people who got lots of likes would also post more. And I don't think they realized what beast they had uncovered. No, I really don't think they did. Yeah. Someone needs to let my grandma know because she still writes comments on things saying, oh, I like this. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And arguably it's probably better, you know. But it probably is. We just see it as weird. And I was having a conversation with some friends yesterday about how we're all being in quarantine at the moment. We are having, you know, weird kind of social interactions. And one of the things that people do over text a lot is they like a message as a kind of, yes, I've seen this or I appreciate this as opposed to replying. And it's going to be strange going back to the real world and having conversations where someone says something and you can't just be like, yep and then carry on you have to actually formulate a reply <laughs> yeah i i do do that mate one mm. of my mates is a big user of the uh, thumbs up just like emote sort of thing just the thumbs up just the thumbs up it almost feels passive aggressive sometimes i suppose it could yeah um so the big algorithm thing is instagram twitter and facebook changed from chronological to algorithmic based content drives so it used to be you just scroll through them and they see the newest things and you go down and you get to the older things. It what It's what makes sense. We as humans live chronological lives, so it's a perfect balance. But of course they found that if they switched to an algorithm, they'd increase engagement and therefore make more money off of ads. Which is like all well and good, but if you think about it on the foundational level of the fact that our entire existence is chronological, it's kind of screwed up. Yeah, it's a weird one because it's basically the algorithm deciding what you should see first or what you should see at all yeah uh, yeah especially with facebook's case i mean facebook sometimes you can go on there and at the top can be something which got posted a week ago and you won't be able to find something which your friend sitting next to you has just posted the the facebook one i find more confusing the instagram one makes a bit more sense to me it, it does just it feels like it does so Twitter is currently the only of those three monoliths that you can actually manually switch back to chronological mode. And I do that all the time. I only ever browse Twitter set that way. But of course, like anything, they want you to forget about that. So every day or so, they'll reset it. Oh, really? Yeah. I didn't. I've never even switched mine back because I don't go on Twitter that much. But the one I find interesting on Twitter as well is, is it'll give you like a few tweets 
and then it'll give you this, oh, you missed this bit. Which is, again, it's it's picking these things that you hadn't seen and, and going, ah, but you missed this bit. Mm, so, you know. Maybe, maybe you like this. Maybe you like this. Maybe you should be coming on more frequently mm. because otherwise you're going to miss stuff like this. And And platforms claim that this is, you know, their way of kind of curating feeds to our liking. And especially in a time where there's so much content, there's a big argument to that. However, the variety in the content that we see drastically plummets, and most dangerously is it starts to develop echo chambers within the social media we absorb. Yeah, it does create these these sort of echo chambers, because if the things that the algorithms decided you like keep on coming up at the top, then they're the ones that you're going to be interacting with the most, which means that the algorithm is then going to think that you like that, like that more and more and more. And it eventually just pushes out some of these things that maybe you would like if you saw them, but they just don't come up. Yeah, and it essentially the algorithm starts to decide what it thinks you'll believe in. And that can be easily manipulated and become very dangerous, which is what we explored in our data privacy episode, Spy. Where? Yeah, obviously that was, that was all about um, political scandals quite a lot. And, you know, that is an area where it really can um, become quite dangerous. As we as we mentioned, it's... it can become incredibly so. And spyware, if you'd like to check it out, is on our podcast page. It was our episode four, so do take a look. However, it could also be used for good. And you know, these kind of algorithms feeding content to people who want to see them, you know, positive movements can make use of that and gain traction, and much quicker than they would be able to on a chronological system. Although you really have to decide, is that worth the balance? You know, echo chambers are the core foundation of what we could call like outright breeding grounds, and they create spaces where bigotry is accepted, and it results in it being normalized. So like, that's terrible, yet also positive movements around climate change, around social justice, get a huge bump that they really need. So is it worth the trade-off? Yeah, I'm not sure. I think it's one of the things that I think is also worth mentioning here is it alienates people from another perspective, you know, because there's this whole group of climate change deniers, which we're not going to go into, but if the algorithm is feeding them content, which is the stuff that they agree with, and it's not showing them the content from, you know, these reputable sources about climate change and the statistics and all that sort of stuff, then it's only furthering their belief in, you know, climate change being a hoax exactly so there's there's elements of it it's like yes in a sense you've got this this algorithm sort of helping boost these things maybe it's better initially because it you know directs it to the people that can help spread it initially but you know as said in our introductory episode i grew up in a pretty pretty small area of surrey in the uk it's not that diverse i, I mean it's it's getting better but, you know, compared to moving down to Brighton and the University of Sussex, that's so much more diverse a place. And there's so many perspectives that I didn't really think about that I've learned about since going to going to places like that. And regardless of what your opinion ends up being, I think it's good to be able to see all sorts of opinions. Oh, absolutely. And that diversity that people get when they kind of live within a diverse community isn't reflected online. And that's also an opportunity for people who don't live in such a diverse place, such as your village in Surrey, to still get like a diverse experience virtually. Yet this kind of restricts that. Yeah. And as I said, it's 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 a balance between these. I suppose it's almost a balance between these companies deciding what's more profitable and what's more ethical. And, 
do they really have an ethical kind of requirement? Like, if they're still making money and not breaking the law, ethics don't necessarily matter to them unless they care. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's pretty much the issue. That's the issue. And these algorithms, what they really feed beyond that is the fact that content doesn't ever run out. Yeah, especially especially certain platforms. Reddit, I can disappear down a vortex of Reddit. Yeah. And that is all because of the endless content or endless scrolling that Reddit and many, many social media platforms have. Which are incredibly dangerous. Yeah, they're, they're so easy to sink into. And the fact of the matter is that these services don't need to be endlessly scrolling. They could easily be pages which you have to, you know, have 10, 10 items and then have to click next page. And that in itself removes so much of that easy kind of vortex. Um, just just take Google, for example. No one ever checks page two of Google. Exactly. And some social medias used to have this. Reddit used to be paged, and they switched to a non-page system because they needed engagement. Yet, you know, Google doesn't make anything off of you checking page two, so they have no incentive to do so. But it's also a perfect example of why it's helpful to the kind of individual. Yeah, and this... There's going to be a running theme here. This also comes from casino slot machines. That pull to re refresh sort of mechanic that you get on these endless content things where it's like a, oh, I'll just keep scrolling, keep scrolling, keep scrolling. Oh, I've seen all this. Let's refresh it, get some more. That also comes from slot machines. And it's it's an addictive illusion of control, basically. Yeah, I mean, you can literally imagine, like, you pull it down and then, woo, new content. Like, it even looks like a slot machine. And... Obviously, although it's not gambling, it's the same kind of, I pull this down and get something new. Ooh, that's exciting. It's sort of gambling with your productivity and time, though, isn't it? <laughs> oh, it really is, yeah. Yeah, so this is... It's a tough one, this. Because, obviously, I can see from my own <laughs> shortcomings down to this vortex of stuff, I can see the negative sides of this. And from those, you know, a lot of kind of companies have implemented a little reminder of your vortexing, uh, <laughs> but it's only been because of backlash. So Instagram now has a little pop-up that comes up after you've been scrolling for a while saying you're all caught up. Basically, you know, you've seen all the posts that have happened since you were last online, which is great. But of course, there's a caveat in that if you're not a user who uses Instagram frequently, you know, say you check it three times a week. You're going to be scrolling for hours before you hit that. Yeah. It sort of promotes that check it every hour sort yeah. of mentality. Well, well, every day. You know, like not... It, it promotes the fact that if you check it frequently, you don't have to scroll as far. And people are very aware of the damage of the kind of endless scrolling, I think more than the damage of checking Instagram every day. Because one has been much more normalised and one has been much more scrutinised. Yeah. For, for example, I would, I, I tend to check my social medias before I even get out of bed in the morning. Oh, yeah, I've been very much a culprit of that. And I think a lot of people do. And does that you're all caught up thing help me get out of bed sometimes? Sometimes it just tells me to stop looking at that one and go onto a different social media. <laughs> but yeah, I think that's that's only a positive thing, really. It's Yeah. it does Because it, it reminds you that you're using up your time. It, it does, it does, and it, it's YouTube has one as well. It kind of suggests after watching videos for like an hour and a half, oh, maybe you should take a break. And of course, you know, I don't think anyone has ever taken note of that, but it's there. 
because there's normally then a suggestion underneath it of, oh, you might like this video. Exactly. So, you know, they're doing it partly to get brownie points with the ethics, but it's not in the best interest of these companies. No, but I suppose, again, the weighing up sort of thing is it might not be in their best interests in the short term, but if they can keep people in the long term because they feel like it respects their time. That's actually a very a very fair argument is, you know, which of these social medias are going to last because we respect them, essentially. Yeah, I think particularly in our generation, Facebook is really going downhill. Facebook's for fine, most people. I, I reckon, yeah. Um, you know, my parents tend to use Facebook more than any other social media, I think. And I think that is a t- trend. Mm. But for our generation, it's more Instagram, Twitter. I, I was surprised that I got so much back into Twitter. You know, it was really this this year. I, I reckon I properly started using my Twitter account again in January. And I now am on it all the time. And I think I'd not used Twitter for about a year and a half before then. So I don't know what the sudden kind of... I must, you know? Yeah, it's an interesting one because I've, I've felt the same. I've only started using Twitter again more recently, but I've had an account for a long time. Hmm. Do you also think that more social media platforms are going to pop up or do you think that there's enough now that people are like yeah i've had enough i think there's always going to be little niche ones um but you know i think there's a there's a limit in each space so facebook really cornered the market on your kind of searchable personal profile so that you know the sense of you having a facebook page with some photos of you and some information like that'll always be facebook but the time, you know, the newsfeed element of it has entirely moved off to Instagram. And similarly, the kind of more businessy side of it has entirely moved to Twitter. So I'd argue that we're going to see people using the same social medias, but not all of them. Like people will use Facebook for just one thing, Instagram for just one thing. Um, and of course, there'll be new players that come in. And I'd be interested to see actually if there was one that came in with a different business model where you had to pay to use it, but it didn't have ads, it didn't have algorithms. It was just entirely a web-based social space. Yeah, I'd not really thought about that. Would you use that? If you had to pay a monthly fee of like five quid to access like a really high quality social media with you and your friends? I'm not sure. It, it depends because I feel like it would have to depend on whether all my friends were getting it, I think. Yeah. Which is a really hard line to go for, because if there was a few friends that weren't getting it, I'd kind of go, ah, well, never mind. So it's, I think it's a hard sign. I think that's why there's not really been any so far, other than like premium dating services, if you count them. Mm-hmm. But no, they don't. They're not social media. Not really. No. One of the dangers that comes with this, of course, is passive consumption. So, you know, people get so used to browsing social media and it becomes such a part of them, no matter what it is, that it becomes a secondary, almost subconscious task. Um, and it's one of the, you may have heard of the envy spiral, which is a concept similar to the getting likes, where you look at other people's likes and you're like, oh, look, they got more likes than me, which of course has always been a concern. But in passive consumption, it's even more so because you don't even notice the damage that it can be doing to you as you're only exposed to the kind of better half of people people's lives and it's the part that they decide to share publicly and make look beautiful and filters and all that yeah that's and i think that's one of the places where instagram falls 
more into the dangerous side of things because Instagram, I mean, Instagram have been trialing this. You can't see how many likes other people have got thing. Mm. It's a concept I quite like. I think that's yeah, I I like it as a concept. Very cool. uh, I like that. <laughs> I like that too. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's because it is easy to scroll down and and think, oh, that person's got two hundred likes. My highest one's only got forty. But who really cares? I mean, that I think that's the thing is that no one should care, but we all do. Yeah, I, I think that's the that's the biggest danger. Is I I know I don't like. I couldn't give less of a crap. But I think there are a lot of, and I feel very strongly that people shouldn't, but there are many people who will regardless. And it's it's a danger, you know? Yeah, I don't really worry too much about how many likes I get, but there is a part of me that, you know, if you post something on Instagram and it gets 20 less likes than sort of your normal average, you're saying, oh, oh people didn't like that as much as I thought they were going to. Yeah, and I, I think about that, and I think that's in a way less dangerous because it's more well it depends what the purpose of the post is you know if you're posting your latest holiday and it got 20 less likes you might go oh well my holiday wasn't cool but I think that's because no one wants to see anyone else's holidays because everyone just gets jealous like, eh, alright you're on holiday <laughs> um, but I know like at least in the context of this podcast and my designs you know I look at what gets the best engagement and that kind of gives me a pointer as to what content people want to see yeah yeah pretty much which I think is okay for kind of anything a little bit more businessy or professional. But when it's personal, it puts a lot of stress onto an individual living the ideal life, quote-unquote. Because mm. if I wanted to post something which it's something that's interesting to me, but not necessarily to a large majority of people that follow me, you know, I shouldn't, I shouldn't feel like I shouldn't post it. Because exactly. if you, at the end of the day, these, these pages are supposed to be you. They're supposed to be your, your story. It's it's your profile, it's your page, it's your story, exactly. Now, although we've covered a lot of negatives, I think it is worth pointing out some positives of social media. Um, there are kind of four main ones, and at the moment, at the time of this recording, while we're all in social isolation, I think they're more apparent than ever. Oh yeah, I really think they are. I have to say, it's, it's really shown the benefits of it. It, it really has, you know? And obviously that social connection is is the main thing i mean we're currently recording this over discord you know that's at the end of the day that's a social media platform yeah and it's allowing us to keep in contact it's allowing you know discord zoom house party facetime they've all really saved us in this time and i mean people use them all the time so i think people have become much more thankful for their existence right now but they've always been valuable incredibly valuable i have I have this like thought in my mind about whether we will all have a different perspective on these sort of platforms after this, you know, crisis is over. I think there's got to be elements of it which which carry through. I think there will be, and I think that'll be really interesting to see. And maybe we can take a kind of retroactive look at this in a few months' time. Yeah, maybe we could. We could do a little a little update. <laughs> Some of the other positives include. I mean, as we've mentioned a little bit earlier, mass movements, it's really helped sort of the engagement in some, you know, really important protests and movements. Yeah. And it, it's it's a way of spreading spreading a message, which obviously can be negative as well. Um, but in this sense, we're looking at the positives. So. Campaigns and awareness have changed in a way that would have absolutely not have been feasible even, you know, 10 years ago, let alone a long time ago. 
Yeah. And it's like petitions, for, for example. It's so easy now for a petition to be shared on Facebook and you think, yeah, yeah, I, I support that. Yeah, I agree with that. Click on it, quickly, quickly sign the petition and away you go. It's easy. Rather than someone have to come and knock at your door and get you to sign your name sort of thing. Exactly. And it's not worth, you know, discounting entertainment, which is, of course, a positive, And there's nothing wrong with entertainment. Yeah. You know, we've got access to all of this content right at our fingertips. And especially, you know, at the time we're currently in, I think there's a lot of chaos and a lot of sort of scaredness in, 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 in the world. Yeah. And so a bit of light entertainment, it's, it's a good thing in moderation. And I think the kind of the, the real conclusion here is that none of these social medias are intrinsically bad. It's more just having a little bit of awareness about how they're built and how overuse or certain types of use can become a little bit damaging. Yeah, and it's and it's awareness of how they interact with our basic kind of human psychology at the end of the day. And there are honestly like very easy things that one can do to kind of just help themselves a little bit. And we're going to cover a few of these just to finish this all out. So the big one with notifications is to turn off all notifications that are not human. Yeah, and I think that's a fun one. It is a fun one. Uh, it's definitely what I've done. Just keep the notifications for your friends. And that does still mean social media. Uh, but, you know, look into your Facebook settings, Instagram settings, see where you can actually just tighten them up a little bit to get rid of the recommendations and leave it on just the comments and messages. Yep. And another another potential is um, to grayscale your screen. And this is something that you can do if you go into accessibility settings on most phones. Um, and it just, as the name suggests, grayscales your screen. It gets rid of the colours. And suddenly that social media of a nice red bubble becomes nowhere near as enticing as, I don't know, a calculator that it's sat next to. <laughs> It makes it incredibly boring. And as a little positive, it also really increases your battery life. Yeah, I suppose it would. However, it's ugly. Um, I have mine set up so that I can triple click my home button and it'll enable that. And I just, you know, I'm like, when I've been using my phone for way too long, I just turn it on for a bit. But I know people who have it on 24-7 and they swear by it, but I could not do that. Yeah, I couldn't do that, especially, I mean, we've, we've mentioned it. Instagram to me is is my favorite social media because I quite like I like the pictures. <laughs> it's all about the pretty pictures. I like looking at the pictures and pictures don't really work in black and white. Well, they I suppose they do, but they do. Actually, I have enjoyed when I've had my phone grayscaled and I've opened the camera app. It kind of gives you a little bit of a new perspective on you know a photo you'd regularly be taking. You're like, oh, that looks quite cool. Um, and it did make me for a while try to take photos more using a black and white filter on my phone. Yeah, I suppose so. Just because it's not something you see so much. And I, I have to say, I do like your idea of having it on your triple tap of your home button. I'd, I'd not really thought about doing yeah. that. It means it's easy accessible. You know, if it's annoying you, turn it off. If you're annoying yourself, turn <laughs> it on. The next thing you can do is you can restrict your home screen so that only your kind of tools and essentials are there. And even though, of course, all your apps are easily accessible, it's just a little extra step. And putting in little extra steps really help. Yeah, and it's it means that you can open your phone when you just need... You need to get your phone out to do something um, because, you know, phones nowadays are. They're a tool that we can use for so many things. But it stops you from opening it and seeing, ooh, ooh, I've got a notification on that social media. Maybe I'll just I'll just quickly check that. And then 50 minutes later, you're still scrolling. Exactly. It just takes the distraction straight out from in front of your face. Yep. 
And lastly, but not leastly, uh, you can enable screen time, which is kind of a feature on all iOS and Android phones at this point. You can really set how you want it. You know, you can have it just little gentle reminders saying you've been doing this for a bit long, or you can set it to actually limit app usage um, and restrict social media apps to, you know, one or two hours a day. Yeah. Or three, you know, whatever you are personally comfortable with. I don't think there's any set number that works. Yeah. I mean, I have I have that set up for, and you can uh, on iPhone at least, I don't know about Android, but you can you can really customize it to set up. So that specific app mm-hmm. can only work, um, you know, for that much time per day. But there yeah. is always an override button. And I have to say, I do click it quite a lot. But it just, it sort of shames yeah. you, if anything. And Android provides those same options. So it's very accessible. And yeah, even though the override button is a little bit of a kind of, it's there. I, I find even having to consciously press like 15 more minutes, 15 more minutes, it really helps me realize that, okay, I've, I've pressed that button five times. It's been over an hour. Let me stop. Yeah. I'd say one of the things that I would kind of almost like for it to do, but I doubt it would be able to, is to limit your just scrolling, but still let hmm. like messages through. Because like something like Instagram, where you can have messages on Instagram, but you can also have like endless scrolling. It's the endless scrolling, which is to me the one that I can get sucked down into. But the messages i still want to have those human notifications coming up oh yeah absolutely you know if you hit the screen time limit sometimes does block them which then means that to check if you've got any messages you've got to go into the app and honestly just you know little things and they help a lot and set them up to your comfort on that note follow us on instagram at assemble.it for a deeper look into the show and our work including behind the scenes outtakes products and updates Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so that you never miss an episode. If you've enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends, family, co-workers, and goldfish. Unlike videos and blogs, podcasts have no algorithm for recommendations, and we rely entirely on your word of mouth as our listeners. We've already told you to follow us on Instagram, so once more, remember to subscribe to the podcast, share it among your friends, family, co-workers, goldfish, and we'll see you in two weeks with our next episode. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Some Assembly Required is co-hosted and produced by Pablo Samoyles and George Wyeth, and edited by Pablo Samoyles. Music is by Mikey Burtwistle. This is a 76 Productions podcast.